This is Story and Rain Talks, the Story and Rain podcast. I'm Tamara, founder and editor in chief. After over 20 years in the fashion and print magazine industries, I launched StoryandRain.com, the digital fashion, beauty and wellness, entertainment and lifestyle publication. And on this podcast, you'll get inside the story with the tastemakers and the trends that matter right now. From the actors you enjoy watching in TV and film to the most influential fashion and accessories designers, the costume designers responsible for all the on-screen style that makes its way straight to the streets, the beauty pros who set the trends in hair and makeup, the culinary creators who dream up all you want to eat and drink, the wellness experts who innovate in self-care and more, it's conversations with creatives, and we're exploring the origins or game-changing ideas and careers with those who are pushing culture forward. As a catalyst for creativity and through candid conversations with our community of cultural arbiters, we're your resource for discovering today's most interesting people, projects, and products with our high-low approach to style and the belief that magic exists in the diversity of mix. We're going to inspire you to live your most stylish life. Get inside the story right here. It's Story and Rain Talks. Be careful what you wish for, said our episode 118 guest up next. Dr. David Colbert's New York-based dermatology practice grew like wildfire within two years. Today, he is in demand on both coasts and operates a roving clinic in between. This is a doctor who innovated and shattered the mold for what we came to know as the typical medical and cosmetic dermatologist. On the podcast, David explains how he first did so when he rejected the idea that the kind of practice he was to build needed to look a certain way and be located on Madison Avenue. Explaining that things get really big really fast in New York if you hit the vibe or the zeitgeist of something, Dr. David Colbert did just that. His thoughtful approach to his work, keen connection to his patients and clients, forward-thinking spirit, and artistic authenticity led him to tap into all the things that people wanted, needed, and then some, becoming one of the most sought after in his field. From the models that need to get ready for the runway to the actors that are being filmed for the screen and everyone in between, he has trademarked treatments, products, and a -a one-of-a-kind touch that has shattered and continues to shatter the industry standard. And he shares stories tied to those moments here. We discuss his famed triad facial and the music legend who sparked its development and success. We get into product development and his delicious Illumino face oil. He explains the polarity in client needs and wants that comes with working on both coasts, his aesthetic, both personal and in his work, the innovations he's interested in, correcting cosmetic work, and the importance of what he describes as not shopping in a grocery store when you're hungry. A longtime proponent of how critical food and nutrition are for supporting the skin, he discusses why he wrote his high school reunion diet book and how lifestyle, including stress and drinking water, play a bigger part than most people realize. We get into his early life, including why Barishnikov made him pack up his plan for studying ballet at Joffrey and time spent at Chanel in Paris. We dissect the way he eats and lives, the lessons he's learned along the way, and his biggest learning as an entrepreneur, and being a reluctant businessman and an avid outdoorsman. And then there's art. David explains how he's artistic in his work and also his love of art and art collecting. And then there's charity. We talk about life-changing time spent in Haiti and more. 
soulful and artistic, low-key and high-end all at once, you'll hear firsthand about the discreet way, the restrained and refined touch that he's known for, and what sets apart his New York dermatology group from all the rest. Time to get into episode 118 with Dr. David Colbert. How are you tomorrow? I'm good. I'm good. We're going to start at the beginning. All right. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Midwest, uh, not too far from Chicago, on the Iowa border of Illinois, on the Mississippi River. And were you creative as a child? And if if so, how so? <laughs> yeah, I was. Um, I think I was sculpting, like, and I was drawing and painting when I was pretty young. Um, how old? Probably six, seven, eight, nine. And yeah, I sort of, all the teachers sort of thought of me as the artist student um, in grade school, at least in the beginning. Um, so, Is there anyone else in your family who shares your creativity or your creative eye? Um, my oldest sister, where I'm one of seven, um, did go to you know university for art studies and she was a great... She was excellent at drawing and painting. And then I have a brother who was an actor in L.A. Um, and also very creative. Um, yeah. So three of seven. Three of seven. And are the others totally different from the three of you? Uh, one of them is an excellent writer. My second oldest sister. Um, yeah. And then another brother is like um, very much into sports and the whole like... Um, and yeah, so that's all of us. When was it that you decided to become a doctor? Oh my God. Um, I think I was, a, I was a sick kid for a while. I had some weird infection in my ear and I spent three months in the hospital. So at that point I started identifying with the doctors and yeah, when I got out, I mean, it's so long ago, I barely remember, but I always said, I'm going to be a doctor. And so that was always in the back of my head. And we had a neighbor who was uh, a physician and it seemed like they had the most interesting lives. Like they were always like going to Europe or they were, you know, doing something really fun and all the kids were hardworking at school. And it just seemed like a good track to be on. Yeah. Um, well, you must've had know. a great experience. Well, great is relative. Uh, great's probably too strong a word, but you must've had a, a really positive experience in and out of the hospital with doctors for you, for it to make that kind of a positive impression on you. Right. Most people associate having to deal with that and being a kid is being difficult, but you extracted something positive from that in a way. I think during the time it was really frightening, but then when it was over, all the pain was gone and the problem was solved. And, you know, I lay with just one little scar. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And that I thought at the time, but in retrospect, um, now I was lucky. You've several degrees. And for the sake of this conversation, can you name them? Oh my God. Um, let's see. I have a medical degree. And I have, um, I did a full residency in internal medicine and then dermatology um, and was board eligible in emergency room medicine. And then I did a one-year wound healing fellowship um, at, at uh, Boston University. And then, you know, undergrad 
romance language dance and um, zoology. <laughs> and you studied medicine in France. You just mentioned Boston. What was life like during those days and in those places? Paint a picture. Well, before the picture, you know, people probably want to know why did someone from Iowa go to medical school in France? I, I moved to um, New York to study ballet at the Joffrey. Um, I auditioned in this, like in college, I was a dance minor and they asked me to come and take class. So I dropped everything I was doing. I had finished my degree, my pre-med and I moved to New York with a friend, actually a boyfriend and, um, and lived the New York city life, Lower East Side, Pyramid Club, um, uh, a lot of fun. Um, but then at one point I just realized, you know, after seeing, like after watching Baryshnikov in the studio, it was like, <laughs> I have no right to be here. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, if that's the top, uh, I think I better look elsewhere. And at one point I broke my foot, um, you know, doing some jumps and a friend of mine just said, you know, you should apply to med school. So I tried to get into a U.S. school and I've been out for two years and I didn't get in. So I'm fluent in French. I applied to a French program. I got in. And uh, next thing I know, I'm in in uh, Normandy studying medicine. <laughs> Did you love it? Did you absolutely was it, was it culture shock? Did you love it? No, it was not culture shock because I've been to France many times before. Yeah, yeah back up when I was 16. Um, yeah. It was sort of a fearless experience and I was lucky. I understood the professor, his accent, and it was not hard. And I loved every day of it because it was, you know, instead of being in New York in med school or Ohio or somewhere, I'm like, I was studying in a little cafe all day long. My Amazing. class eating top-notch food <laughs> and, and the dollar was two to one to the the franc now the euro so i was living a high life and uh you know traveling every weekend to another city or country and taking my books studying on the train so it was really an unusual way to uh to uh, study medicine and then after my second year i took a a, a test a, what's called a transfer m skip test and um and I transferred back to New York Medical College my third year. So and then how did you end up studying wound healing, which is so interesting to me in Boston? Oh, that's a long one. Um I'll make it short. Uh did you like Boston? Do you like being there? No, I didn't. Um, I'm sorry, but I really did not. I came back to New York City every weekend. But I was um I was finishing internal medicine studies and that was like at the height of the HIV epidemic. So it was really grueling. Yeah. And I, I made the decision even like in my second year of med school, I wanted to be a dermatologist. And so at that time you had to have a full internal medicine degree first before you could even apply to derm. So I did that. And in order, it was very competitive. So in order to get into a program, you had to prove yourself. So I did a, and, you know, helped write a few articles, get my name on there. Um, and that just proves um, to the selection committee that you're dedicated to that particular subject. So that is why. Yeah. And you've been established in private practice in New York City since about 1995. Was it 1995 or so? Yeah, I finished at Columbia Presbyterian, um, my dermatology residency, in 95 or 96, I don't remember. Um, and then I 
and then I moved to, and then I got a job at Chanel working in the, the sensory laboratory in Paris. Um, one, because I speak French, two, because I had a degree in dermatology and three, because I was willing to be creative. So I lived in Paris for my first year out and I was back in the cafes yes. uh, writing and studying for my dermatology board. So it, it was pretty fun. I, I can't. Yeah. Was it sort of out of the box for you to have, have decided to go work for a company like Chanel, right? Yeah, it was 100% out of the box because everyone else was signing contracts to work at some practice in New York. And I thought, oh, wow, if I'm working there, I can study for my boards and then I can come back and get a job. Um, so that's what I did. Yeah, totally out of the box. What were the days like there? Did you enjoy it? I, I mean, I'd already lived yeah. in France, gone to medical school, um, lived in Paris. So it was a lot of fun. Get up every morning, take the uh, subway out to New York, yeah. you know, yeah. La Défense, and work in the lab and sort of learn some of the catchphrases for sensory um, discussions of skincare products and um, doing different little experiments on how to prove that the skincare product actually works better. So like little wax impressions, um, fractional studies of the surface of the skin, um, I mean, you have to know, I didn't invent these things. They needed a dermatologist who spoke French, who was American. Um, worked quite well. We're going to talk about product development in a bit. But back to New York, you establish a practice in New York City. What do you love about working in New York? Oh, that's easy. Just the um, complete variation or diversity of um, people. Um, I think I would have just melted and disappeared if I was in some small town with the same thing over and over again. I really, by that point, had lived all over the world and traveled a lot. And so every day just felt like fun, like interesting people from all walks of life, window washers, models, uh, you know, construction workers, uh, TV stars, um, and all that came later. But I love the diversity and I also love the medical part of dermatology. Like that was why I went into it. Um, people really didn't know much about filler and Botox when I was starting. It wasn't even really there. Um, so I loved it. It was very artistic, looking under a microscope, very visual, um, and recognizing um, some of the 2,800 or 2,500 Dermatologic diseases of the skin um, is one, a great challenge, and two, really fun. It's pattern recognition, and having done internal medicine, it made it even easier for me. Um, and I loved it. What has been rewarding about how your practice has grown over the years? Uh, I'm going to preface that with be careful what you <laughs> wish for. Um. The lots of rewarding things. Uh, my partner and I, JP, um, really uh, grew this thing. And I, to be fair uh, about the history of how my practice grew, you know, I wanted a one room office on Irving Place over by Gramercy Park. And, you know, I went to look at it. And my partner and business partner just was like, I think you can go bigger than that. And I had, I just never thought. I never thought of after told you being that big. And anyway, so we found a space at one of three fifth Avenue and it was basically like a big loft apartment around three. But then 
we were there for two years and we just uh, grew it within two years. We didn't have enough room in our waiting room. And so um, JP found a, a space up the street on the corner of 19th and 5th. And at that point, this neighborhood was not that great, Lower Fifth Avenue. It was kind of a rough neighborhood, yep, believe it or yep. not. Um, and uh, anyway, this this building was basically empty. And so we went in and uh, rebuilt a floor that was empty. It was to form a video studio. And you've seen that office. Yes, been it's there, fantastic. You know, it's, it's a like, great building. That was sort of like modeled after the Chanel office. Was that was sort of in the back of my mind? It was like Clinique Chanel, something in there. That's exactly what it reminds me of. But um, anyway, so be careful what you wish for because you know things get really big, really fast in New York. If 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 it, if you hit the vibe or the zeitgeist of of something, whether it's you know music, art, or dermatology. Yeah, let's talk about that. Can you tie hitting the zeitgeist to a particular moment where you went and said, oh, okay, you know, the stars have aligned here. And do you tie it to a particular moment where you said, okay, wow, this is blossoming in a way that I would have never imagined? Yeah, I think when we did um, like the hard opening of the new office on 5th, um, it was so beautiful. And, you know, by that point, I it had a lot of, you know, different clients and architecture and different magazines and, and, and the arts. And so we threw sort of an opening party and I thought, Oh, probably, you know, 20 people will come. And I think maybe there were 300 people and it just was the buzz. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm just thinking about being a medical dermatologist, but then Botox had, and what year was this when you threw the party, the opening party for the new office? Uh, it was, let's see, I think 99, maybe 2000. I don't remember. Um, actually, no, it was later than that. Hang on. Because I remember 9-11, I was looking out at the towers collapsing from the window of my first office. So somewhere early 2000, yeah. How have patient needs and we were talking about Botox and that time in the early 2000s, how have patient needs and requests changed over the years when it comes to aesthetic or cosmetic work? Um, <clears throat> depends on what coast you're on and then what country. You work on both coasts. Yeah, I, I think um, in New York, it's, you know, I always just think about people really don't want um, and they want, they don't want to be noticed in New York. They want to be, they want to go about their job and they want to look good. They want to perform well, you know, New York, you can't live in New York and not work hard and not have high aspirations. If you come from somewhere else, if you're born and raised there, that's one thing you might move away. But, um, so all these young people moving into the city, you know, twenties, thirties, um, they just want to look good. Um, more women than men, although that has changed now for sure. Um, but the aesthetic is always like, I don't want people to know I was here, sort of like that. Um, play, it's more like if if I don't look like I was here, then it's not worth paying to come. <laughs> really, really interesting I mean, differentiation. And I'm generalizing, yes, of course. but still, 
I'm realizing and I'm doing statistics point to, you know, a different look in Los Angeles. And that's just a fact, like it or you not. You talked about, you know, being a little artist at age eight or nine. Art has been a big part of your life. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that sort of has has evolved itself over the years how art has been a big part of your life oh sure um well you know during the time that i was just studying all the time when i when i say that i just mean like every day 12 hour days studying working you know 80 hour work weeks um as an intern and resident um i sort of put art in the back of my head and when i finally finished i had this big office on fifth avenue um that we could barely afford to pay the rent and i started thinking wow look at it's like an art gallery in here i need to i need to find some art and then i realized i'm not going to impose my artistic tastes on people who come to my office so but i still wanted to collect art and i still wanted to paint i did paint for a while i thought i was okay um but then i i, I met up this guy Jack Pearson, who's an artist. And if you look him up, you'll see he's quite a a well-known artist. And we surfed together. And I said, you know, I want to start collecting art. And um, because I really like it. I like living around it. And he introduced me to a guy named uh, Bob Nikas, who's an art critic and writes for Fiden and is an amazing curator for white columns and all kinds of stuff and all kinds of different galleries around the world. And we became friends and once a week we would go, once a month we would on a Sunday go out and look at who who he thought were the breakthrough artists. Um, and that could be anywhere in Brooklyn, Lower East Side, um, New Jersey, um, Catskills. We, we would go and we would look and um, he would set me out on a, a, a challenge to pick the best piece in the room or to pick the piece that I thought I wanted to get. And it was always inexpensive, by the way. These are like emerging artists. So um, I'll give an example. Um, there was an artist who, she's Romanian, and he took me to this gallery and I saw some stuff and I was like, wow, I really, really like this. So I bought up four things and the artist made the frame for me. And then I brought it home and I tucked it away in my, my little collection and now this artist is, um, you know, a big wig at the Venice Biennale. Um, you know, I got four pieces for um, a ridiculous amount. <laughs> but so I started collecting and... Um, you put a lot of care into collecting. It- yeah, if you saw my collection, you'd see it's all about, mostly about the face or the human figure um, or some sort of conflict about beauty or self-image. And, um, you know, I don't think you've seen it, but it is pretty interesting. And I think, I think, I think I will eventually have a real show. Um, I, I opened up my own little gallery on 17th streets. It's on Instagram. I just put it up. It's at studio six N NYC. Studios took oh, good. NYC. Okay. So you can see some we'll of follow. Yeah. Fantastic. Art has been a big part of your life. And you talked about how, how that came to be with Jack and uh, developing this ritual of collecting. And now you have a gallery and you hope to show one of these days. 
you talked a little bit about this earlier, um, but let's talk about it a bit more. Uh, how are you an artist in your work as a doctor? Um, I would say that, you know, when a, when a person comes in and we're, we sit down and we talk for a bit and um, most of the time people come in as a canvas um, and not the artist. Um, every once in a while, someone will come in and sit down and tell me what to do. So I'm I have a, a question about that too. Or the, you know, the designer that comes in, but most people, because uh, most of my referrals are by word of mouth and friends come in and they just say, well, what do you think? What should I do? And then that gives me the opening to just look at them, you know, listen, look at, hear them talk, listen to, you know, what their concerns are. And, um, you know, dermatology is half psychiatry, half medicine or half dermatology um, injections and stuff. Um, but when when there's a canvas sitting there, it's a lot easier because then I get to imagine what they look like maybe 10 years ago. And it's not hard yeah. for me to do after, after. Oh, I'm sure. 20. And people are talking to you about their insecurities. Is that sort of, you know, a lot of what it is or desires or. Um, for example, you know, um, I'm going to a high school reunion. People are age, which is normal um, for most people. Um, they are, uh, they're, you know, looking good is easier in the world of iPhones because it seems like that's one's only existence is how you look on your iPhone <laughs> picture. So that tons and tons of patients who want minor little tweaks in their face. Um, but yeah, there's lots of insecurities. I mean, there's no doubt about it. How do you describe your own personal aesthetic? You've got a great personal aesthetic. And then the aesthetic of the NYDG facility and offices, you said that you sort of modeled that after like the look of a clinique. Can you talk a little bit more about your own personal aesthetic and, and, and how, how it melds with that of what uh, the office is like? Okay, so, well, my own personal aesthetic is in terms of architecture and design. One, I don't know anything about it, but two, I do know what I like when I see it. And I like simplicity. Um, I like clean lines, clean walls. If there's art, I don't want to see a lot of it. I want to see something really good. Um, I don't like clutter. Um, I like, you know, natural lines, whether they're straight or curved. Our first office um, on the fourth floor is more of that Clinique look or Chanel. And our second office is really more modeled by my partner, JP, who's a sailor. And so he ended up ordering everything from a yacht maker in Italy. So all the walls are, are made from yacht fiberglass. Um, and in the shape of an oval or a mitochondria, a cell mitochondria with with undulations all the way around all eight thousand square feet um with the original windows and the original color of the wood from late 1800s the 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 office originally i think alexander's department store in the late 1800s early 1900s so we we kept all the original wood but um so the aesthetic my aesthetic is you know keep it simple clean fresh um I think the opposite 
of my aesthetic would be, you know, going into some castle with thick velvet furniture and curtains everywhere (laughs) and gold on the wall. Yeah. Uh, You know, think Dubai, think Dubai um, or Las (laughs) Vegas. So that's um, anyway. Yes. And you talked a little bit about both floors uh, at your office. You recently expanded the offerings at NYDG. When and why did you decide to add on more of a wellness space? Because about four years ago, wellness started to become a really big deal. And if it, if you weren't well, if you weren't dealing in wellness, you know, you were going to lose patience and you weren't doing your job. And at first it kind of irritated me because no one could define it. Like, what's wellness? And then one day I just realized, like, if anyone knows wellness, it should be me. You know, um, I'm an internal medicine doctor and I'm a dermatologist. So I can combine being well from the inside and, and looking great on the outside. So what does that entail? Well, that means, you know, uh, making people exercise, making people hydrate, doing IVs. Um, doing anti-inflammatory lights, encouraging exercise. I mean, it's all very basic, but somebody had to put a name on it. And so we were in a position to do that. And this this floor became available and um, we, we did go out on a limb to build it. Um, and, uh, you know, we offer like all kinds of intravenous infusions, um, red light therapy, cryotherapy, things that just make you feel good. Um, and, of your health, looking at your blood work and doing things that actually make you live longer and look better and function better. This is a big question, but what has been your biggest learning as an entrepreneur? Um, Don't grow too fast. Um, That's my biggest learning. I think think that um, you have to move really slowly when you, you know, when you're entering the world of business because I never wanted to be a businessman and I'm still not. Um, I've been sort of pushed to the limit to learn it. Um, I think in retrospect, you know, I probably would have kept myself smaller and instead of having two product lines, I would have one. Um, because the pandemic sort of annihilated business in New York for two years and only, only now am I, uh, you know, sort of growing back, and now our growth is, you know, explosive again. Um, Great, fantastic. So, so during the pandemic, you know, we lost, I think, thirty employees, and yes, uh, basically had to start over with this new empty floor of wellness. <laughs> uh, but anyway, now and now people the, need uh, that ne- more than ever. You know, exactly. I think now. Everyone that went through that realizes, like, wow, the healthier you are, no matter how you look, is um, you're going to do better in the next pandemic, or you're going to do better when you get sick next time. Yeah. Um, and so, lesson learned. But as an entrepreneur, take your time. Of uh, smaller steps um, are probably bigger steps. Yeah. And in talking about wellness from the inside out and skin and nutrition, a subject which is of importance to you. You wrote the book called The High School Reunion Diet, you said, as sort of an answer to uh, all the people that had come to you to say, hey, I've got to look great for this particular event. But I'd like to know, what do you see in terms of the differences in people's skin 
those who are serving their skin by taking in the right nutrients and those who do not? Yeah, I would say there's a massive difference. I mean, first of all, let's start with genetics. You know, you have what you're given and then it's nature versus nurture. And I think, you know, people who spend an ordinate amount of time in the sun baking their skin, uh, drinking a lot of alcohol, smoking, um, partying, not resting, having a job that's incredibly stressful and not having a way out um, on the weekends, you're going to see it in their skin. And then when you meet people who who um, take care of themselves or who have a less stressful job, but um, they don't push their life to the limit, um, they're going to look pretty good usually. And people who have equanimity, people who have peace from the inside out, even if they weren't born with, you know, maybe model looks or something, they're going to look great, you know, just because no stress looks good. It's interesting. Stress is a really important factor. Sounds like stress is a big Yeah, it really is. I mean, on a molecular or biologic level, science level, um, you know, stress increases all these hormones that really put your body into overdrive, increase your blood pressure, increase your heart rate, um, and um, certain foods that you eat, junk foods can sort of help harden the arteries, so to speak, like oscillation or sugar in your artery walls um, or arterioles. So, you know, it all, it all comes together. What you eat, what you do, how much, and hydration, because, you know, people always sort of laugh when they hear, oh, eight glasses of water a day, but all you have to do is come up state here and look at the drought and the reservoirs. It's desiccation. Like all the little rivulets and all the little rivers that I hike by are always running with fresh water and we're having a drought. So what does the ground look like? It's all dry and cracked. And that's how I kind of think of people's insides when they're not hydrating. And it's really easy to get dehydrated. Yeah. Um, most people are walking around and, and they could use a couple glasses of water yeah, to function yeah. better, to think more clearly, to have less joint pain, to have their skin look more like turgid and fresh. Um, and, you know, I think that is one of the reasons why we offer IV therapy, because I always tell people, you tell me before and after how you feel. I love your IV therapy. Been, I love it. Isn't it fun? But if you've ever been in the ER, once you have that IV, you feel yeah. like a new person. Yeah. And that's a good example of. Yes, right. The degree isn't as high, but it's a good example of like, wow, we function so much better because our bodies are based on water. A lot of people under underestimate the power of water. Um, What's your perspective on the top foods that are great for skin? Maybe these days. I'm going to stick with what what I always say is, um, you know, one moderation in things that you choose, but I'm not really big on meat. Um, for various reasons, because um, I think most most medical studies show that people who eat a lot of red meat tend to have more health problems, and it's a fact. So, like it or not, depending on, you know, I don't care what the meat lobby says, like it or not, that's true. I stopped eating red meat recently, actually. Ah, good. Um, I did it a long time ago, and it made me feel great, but um, I'm a big fan of you know vegetarian food or eating vegetables and um grains and things because no there's a there's a netflix thing on all these 
super athletes that became vegan or vegetarian um, and are super athletes. And it just goes to show you that you don't need to eat meat to, to look good, to have muscle. Um, and the example they give is, you know, a raging bull. Well, guess what? Bulls don't eat meat. They're vegetarian. Yeah. So you can be massively strong and be very functional on a on, on vegetable diet or, or even I mean, add a little chicken or fish. But um, meat to me is very inflammatory. It's like hard to digest and you're sort of making your body fight. And every time I yes, try- Yes, right. Just, you're like, you're no, making your body fight? fight to digest. And, and so I just, I don't have that fight with, with other foods and don't get me wrong. Like I'd like, I would like to be able to eat those things. I just feel better if I don't. Yes. And so I'm just very big on, you know, green leafy vegetables and fruits and all that. Describe a five star day of eating for you. <laughs> well, this is going to be sort of easy because a friend of mine has a restaurant called 11 Madison. And yeah, we know I, it well. I, okay. You do. Well, I didn't. Um, and I always wondered what was in that building. And then I, I always wondered what he did for a living. <laughs> he said, you should come to my restaurant sometime. And I was like, oh, okay, well, who knew when I got there that it was like five-star vegetarian food. That was my five, that was my five-star meal of like, I don't know, six or seven courses of different concoctions of vegetable food that was as every bit as delightful and delicious as any kind of meat. Yeah. So just amazing. And what do you eat on a daily basis personally or try or try to? Um, I usually just eat once a day um, and that's a habit. Uh, I'm not saying to do that, but I'm saying, you know, from medical school and dancing, you know, and dancing and ballet, it's like, you just you really don't need to eat except for something to give you a little energy um, for class. And so people are not always eating because if you're eating, your stomach feels like it's pushing out. So um, I got into that habit of eating at night, um, but not late, you know. And then in medical school, you just never have time to eat. So you just if you just see food, you grab an apple or banana or whatever. Um, and so as I got older, I just realized I don't like eating during the day. It makes me tired and sleepy. I'm not telling other people to do that, but it helped me. It helped me bring my cholesterol down and it helped me uh, stay uh, lighter and leaner. Um, and, and recently, I think there's been a few books. You offer some wonderful trademarked treatments. Can you share what those are and what sets them apart? I think the first trademark thing that I think we ever did was something called the triad facial. Yes. And I remember, you know, someone I was working with in the media was like, you need to create something special and different. So um, I, I just decided to do some synergism between different procedures. And I, I was surprised that not everyone was doing it. To me, it was like, how could you? How could you not think of this? And the only reason I why would you not think to combine these things? Wow. Yeah, you know, people would do a peel, or they do microdermabrasion, or they do laser, but they would never do all three together. And so, I remember I had this client who, who um, was a singer, and a well-known singer, and she was older, probably in her seventies, and was doing a big concert. And she said, "I want my hands to look really good." So I thought, "Oh, this is a good chance to." 
this is a good chance for me to try this this procedure on someone. Well, I love this story, uh, hearing the backstory of the of this. Yeah. So this is a long time ago. And um, it was Roberta Flack, by the way, okay. who, who I adore. And so it worked. It's like I did the I did the you know microdermabrasion and then I did the laser toning or laser genesis and then I did like a glycolic acid peel and um, it was a smash hit. Like she she came back and wanted me to do her face and her neck. And then, you know, word spreads around. You'd be surprised. Um, and then, you know, uh, uh, different people who are sort of in the media and the arts and modeling and fashion, uh, they would do it and then they'd, they'd look great. And their friends would ask. So that became sort of a cult hit in dermatology. And then it was, you know, after a couple of years of doing that, I started, I decided I should start my own product line since I used to work for Chanel in the, in the skin lab. Um, and so the first thing I wanted to do was try to recreate in a bottle or in a sachet what we're doing with the laser. Like, if you can't come to see me, what would you do? And I, I think I did it. Um, we have these like little things, these tone control discs, and you, you rub your skin down with that. They're great. And then you apply a little serum and a little um, aluminum face oil, which is pomegranate oil, and 11 other essential oils, and you have this crazy glow so you can go crazy glow yeah you, know, right, you can go right to the runway right to the set um and it really really worked so that was that was that's a good example of something that we did what sets your practice apart from other dermatological and cosmetic skin practices in terms of style and vision and mission um i think one is um just the people who work there um, that, you know, I have a doctor from Harvard, one from NYU, one, NYU, one from Stanford. We're all board certified. And then we have two internists because I'm also an internist. And then we have Dr. Adams who's um, just GP internal medicine. So here's a big derm practice, you know, in the corner of fifth Avenue that goes from sunset to sundown in the windows. Um, it's true. It's a, a block long and, it's an experience when you walk in because it, it was really done with love. Like uh, my partner, JP and I, we, you know, we built it, but part of the building was we wanted it to be beautiful because we were living there and we wanted it to be an expression of, um, of both of us. And I think, you know, the fourth floor was really more like me, you know, it was just completely stark and all one color, just very light cream color, everything in lacquer. Um, so one is, you know, having your having yes be happy with the space there and it's inspiring um so that's one thing because in the old days everyone was like oh if you're not in madison avenue or park or fifth avenue above 65th street you'll never have a practice right and i remember being told that when i was at columbia and i thought that can't be true you're, i'm gonna um, change that i'm gonna yeah <laughs> and i did change it did. i mean you know, there are all these practices up there, little hobbles where you walk down and there's carpet and bad art on the wall and it's, and they're charging crazy prices. But, um, so that's one thing. Um, what else sets us apart? Yeah. The quality of the physicians and, um, the less is more philosophy. And I never try to push things on people. If, if the canvas comes in, you know, they asked me 
what it is. I write out an algorithm and I say, you know, if you do this, this is where you're going to get your maximum result. And if that's too much or too expensive, we'll do something else. We, we can shrink this algorithm down and pick out what your priorities are. You know, because it's, it's surprising. Like someone may come and sit down and I may be focusing on something that they hadn't even thought about or they don't care about. Um, and and that's always interesting to me. I bet, um, yeah. Uh, a lot of times it's, you know, a trait that one of their parents has that they see and that's what they want to get rid of. Like oh. it's a trait that they like in their mother or their father. Oh. Um, that's what they're looking to get rid of. Like, oh, my mother had a loose chin or my... My father had hooded eyes or on and on, but that's always surprising. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. When it comes to skin aesthetics, is there anything that the client is asking for these days that has been a surprise to you? Ooh, that's a tough one tomorrow. Let's see. Surprise to me. Um, is there a trend happening now that you're seeing that you're going, oh, that's well, interesting. I didn't think people would go in this direction. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, people do come in sometimes and they will say, I don't want any facial movement. <laughs> they, they put it that way. They, that's how they explain yeah, it. Like, I don't want any, I don't want anything oh, moving. I've heard this that. This is what TV it. has done. Yeah. Um, yeah. I always tell people to go back and Google this cartoon called clutch cargo um google it all it is is like these animated faces but the only thing moving is the mouth and i am, yeah i think it's really weird it's more la than new york and um it's all very bizarre <laughs> but and sometimes people want like a distortion of their face and that's pretty rare yeah you know? like they want something that's not going to look good and i tell well, them yeah um you know in my opinion um, but really, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything that I think is deforming, you know, but if someone wants cheeks or something that don't fit their face, I'm going to tell them, I, you know, I don't think that that's a good ratio for you. Sometimes I might do it if, you know, if they want it and they think it looks good. Um, I think that there are these, this family in LA that we all know that I'm not going to say their name that set um, sort of the the bar for this group of people that, are on Instagram all the time and they feel like that's how, what they have to look like. They have to radically change their look. So that is definitely a trend. I was going to say, you know, a person will see a haircut on a celebrity in a magazine, take that photo to a hairstylist and then expect that they can get that cut and look exactly the same way. And, you know, I'm sure you have to handle patient expectations when people come to you expecting these unrealistic transformations. But I feel like, is that client or patient not necessarily your customer or, or yes? Well, I mean, that's a good point. You know? I mean, they're coming in. They want to know my opinion and it's probably someone who's really not my client, like not, not someone who's a good fit for my right. office. And I know people refer them to who, who practice more that way. Like, you know, I, I just have this vision and I want to, I want to bring it to life. Um, and it's harder for me to to do something that I don't think looks good. And I, I can say pretty much that I never do that. Um, I might give someone slightly bigger lips uh, if, if they want um, because they like the look. And I might say, that's a little big for you, but 
Um, that's as far as yeah. I'll go, I think. I'm doing anything Do else. people come to you to correct mistakes that they make elsewhere? How often is that kind of thing happening and how do you approach correcting? Um, that happens a lot. I bet. Um, is there's so much fraud out there in terms of people representing themselves as experts. I mean, I'm not going to name the names, but just within blocks of my office, there's one in one window, it says cosmetic dermatology made simple, no doctors. <laughs> I mean, okay, let's check. There are 21 paired facial muscles in the face and a group of arteries and nerves that um, you know, are controlling your face. Who wants someone who doesn't know those to put a needle in you? But anyway, people do it. And they don't realize that you know lasers can blind you. They can burn you. They can scar you. And, and putting yourself like under that condition is pretty crazy. So I see people all the time um, for fix-ups and, and alterations and changes um, you know, some doctors get known as like the fixer doctor and I, I've been doing a lot of fixing lately where people come in. From, people went overboard. They, yeah, they went overboard. And, you know, so there's a lot of time talking them off the ledge, dissolving all the filler, trying to get it out or I can go on and on. I see that but being a bit of a post-pandemic thing, right? People just want this quick fix to feel a little better or get get back yeah. to looking yeah. the way that they maybe used to before they were on the couch for two years or something like that. And then you've got a, all that correcting to do. Yes. In other words, you know, you ate more than you should have. You know, you shouldn't shop in the grocery store when you're hungry. <laughs> <laughs> um, what what innovations are happening in skin treatment technology? Uh, what are the innovations that you're excited about? Anything? I'm really excited about exosomes. And they're not available yet. Um, but exosomes are hopefully eventually going to be available in uh, the United States. But these are cellular structures that can help tell certain cells in your skin to work harder. So for example, if you inject exosomes in your scalp and you have thinning hair, you're going to get a lot more hair growth. If you inject them into the skin, you're going to get more collagen and elastin molecules. So, but they're not available here. And, you know, all I can do is read some of the studies that are done you know, abroad, and I never know how much I can trust them, but what I'm reading is pretty amazing. And so I'm excited about that to make its way here. Um, it'll be something that you do with PRP, plasma-rich protein therapy, very popular also for improving collagen and, um, and also for stimulating hair follicle growth. Um, it's also done, you know, injected into the knees to help stimulate cartilage and um, and reduce inflammation in the knee and in different joints. So it started in orthopedics and it moved over to dermatology. Will it come here? Will we see some of that in skin? In, in... I think so. It's going to be yeah. wow. You know, because it'll be something that, you know, um, the powers that be um, are comfortable with the studies and that's always miles away. Um, but it will eventually make it here. We were talking about your two lines of products. You have the NYDG line of products. You have Colbert MD products. Um, I just want to talk about product development. What do you enjoy about it and what is difficult? 
Well, one, you have to find a biochemist. And I was lucky when I first started, um, I asked around and it was not easy, uh, but the, but the chemist is really like so key. So I finally found a chemist um, or biochemist who was excited to work with me and uh, we liked each other. That was the most important thing. We had a similar idea about skincare. And um, I think I, w- I was lucky because all I had to do was describe having worked in a lab and, and knowing how to describe product was was easy for me to to tell Richard that was his name. Jamaican. Um, and he knew, he knows chemistry so well that he would be like, oh, I know what molecules are going to mix together to make this happen. And not, not many people have that knowledge. And I hit, I hit the jackpot with Richard. Um, and I would say, you know, I need, you know, something that a person can wipe their face with and it has a molecule in it that reduces redness and reduces the formation of brown in the skin. And then it needs to make the skin feel smoother. And then the next step is, you know, I want something that seals in moisture. I want a cream that um, neutralizes certain aspects of pollution in a city. And on and on. Um, And talking about different price points. And I was really lucky because once it was done and it was out, I, I flew to Paris and I went right to Colette, to Sarah Colette. And I lucked out. I left the bag there. And I, I didn't know her. I just never email. And the next day I got it. I left my email. The next day I got an email saying, I want to place some uh, order. So I started Colette. Oh, um, I miss Colette. RIP. RIP. RIP is right. Oh. It was the most ingenious, beautiful little store in France. Not little, big. It was. But, uh, and one day she just closed up shop and moved to Brooklyn. But um, anyway. I used to make a stop at Colette every season when I was covering fashion week in Paris. Um, yeah. It's no secret that you work with some of the most visible personalities in the world. Uh, can you trace back how that came to be? Um, I think part of it had to do with, you know, working with a lot of beauty editors um, and having them coming in and seeing our products or seeing myself at Colette or, uh, having the treatments themselves, like the triad facial or doing Botox the way I do it, which, you know, you just look younger, but you don't look done or filler in the same way. Just nobody knows you went. Everyone just says, Hey, you look, you looking good. Um, and I think that caught on like wildfire. And then there was, I think at one point long ago, um, I think I gave my, uh, my line to Sienna Miller and, you know, I think people talk and all these people know each other. And, and so I think that kind of started it. Um, and then my brother-in-law works in the industry and he would sometimes call me and say, we have a problem that's shutting down our, our uh, production of a big movie. And is there any way you can come out and see if you can troubleshoot with this person's skin? And that happened a lot. Ah. Um, and the, these actors, you know, tell their friends, oh, you know, he took care of that. And we got to, we kept filming. Uh, which, like, yeah. So my brother-in-law's name is Todd Hollowell. He does lots of yeah. big movies with Ron Howard. Currently doing, well, I don't know, something in New Zealand with, it's called Minecraft. So, yeah. So 
I got a lot of exposure that way. And also through my brother uh, who worked in, in Fox uh, post production and we're just gets around, you know, it's like, like unity. Um, I didn't realize that you were sort of like rushed to set to help fix. Yeah. I mean, it, it you know, as fast as you can get yeah. from Manhattan to Yale yeah. uh, to New York. <laughs> yeah. um, so as fast as that could be, it was definitely the same day. Like I was like, all right, I'll shut my office down. I'll come out. Um, and whatever. It's, it's funny. Great, you know, great it's story. kind of, it's fun. There's your foundation. Charity work is very important to you. Can you remember when and why you began to make it a big part of your life? Absolutely. Um, I surf. I'm not a great surfer, but I like to surf when I went down to the Dominican Republic a lot, close to the border. So the patient earthquake happened a little over, was 11 years ago. Um, I flew down with um, one of my assistants and we were just, we just went down to um, offer our services. And my service was wound healing, right? There's an earthquake and people have a lot of wounds. So that's what I did. Um, you know, we just flew down to San Domingo and got on a bus to Haiti. And it was just incredible. And so it was at that time that I, that just blew me away and I loved it. I mean, I was working down there and sleeping on the grounds, uh, not even sleeping bag. And I, I just loved it. It was like war medicine. And there was so much chaos down there. But I felt like what we did was important. And we, I met doctors from all over the world that came down that did it. Um, you know, the heroes of, uh, you know, the ICU and um, the orthopedists that came down to do all the, unfortunately, the amputations that had to happen from all the crushed limbs. And so when I left, I thought, I just remember all these patients and I exchanged numbers with a couple of them. And they were like, how are we going to get a prosthetic leg? You know, and this is all in French. I speak French, so this is in Creole. And I thought about it. And when I got back to New York, I felt so guilty, you know, getting on a plane and coming back. And so then I started calling people that I knew. And I thought, let's do a fundraiser. I'd never done anything like that. So I did a fundraiser. And I, I, I sort of like bungee jumped. I was like, I'm going to ask anyone I want, right? And I'm just going to see what happens. And so I asked a friend who, was, who knew Mick Jagger, and he said yes. And then that was the history of it. We raised a half a million dollars that night. And, um, and then I got involved in other charities and, and I liked it. I liked it. Um, lately, it's sort of complicated to be in charity because there's, you know, there's so many to do. Um, and I haven't done as much. I've, I've really wound down and changed my focus um, in Haiti to a very specific thing, which is just, one person and one prosthetic maker because that's all I can afford. Uh, and so we've sent him around the world to learn how to make legs for people after he lost his. And then he's doing it for kids and for other people. And so I feel like that's like not trying to take on the whole world, which is the first thing yeah. I did. Um, but it was easy when you have somebody like Mick Jagger helping you yeah. and, you know, Weiss and Naomi Watts, all these people, they're all helping and sending money and it was a big deal, but I think it's, it's hard to maintain that. And so I shrunk down to what I think is a better way to do it, which is to focus on a small group of people and everyone can focus on something. So that's 
done and I like it. It's beautiful. I want to talk about balance. You talked about surfing. You take the time to surf. You're somebody who balances work and play, I think, really well. How do you manage to do it as a busy New York City doctor and also as someone who routinely is under pressure because of the high stakes work that you do? I think that at one point I sort of just realized about the, the amount of stress that I was under. And I just told myself I'm going to start um, taking care of myself better, which means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surf every weekend. I'm going to take Friday and Monday off. Um, and then when the pandemic happened, I came up to the Catskills and I hiked every day for like straight. And I really got into it. And then I said, I'm not ever giving this up. And I'm, this is a priority for me. Uh, you only go around once. So um, I really get a big kick out of nature and living in it. I would do more if I could. Yeah. What I've carved out now is possible because our office is big enough for seven physicians. And, and I actually have a concierge practice now on wheels that I do up here. You'd be surprised out of the East End and Montauk and Hamptons and even up in the Catskills, I have a roving yeah, office. Sure you and do, yeah. I worked yesterday, yeah. right? I was up here yesterday, Monday. Um, and that, that enables me to keep moving forward. Um, and yeah, hiking, surfing, um, just that's my dog. Sorry, Radar. Radar, go to sleep. Um, sorry. Um, and then I think it's really important to sleep. So when I come up, when I come up and I hike or, or camp or something, you know, it's key when you, when you're above 50 or more, you've got to get sleep. Really good rest. Yeah. It's all about, it's all about repairing your body when you're sleeping. And if you're active, you know, and you're not in your twenties or thirties, you have to repair um, and that you got to eat the right foods. You've got you, you know, you cannot do that. But if you want to perform, uh, meaning you want to play tennis or hike and surf, but not hurt yourself, you got to watch that. So, last question before we talk about what's on your list of current favorite things and obsessions: How do you typically get your best ideas? And are you dreaming up anything now? Best idea. Ideas. I get my ideas from everywhere, from sleeping, dreaming, reading the New York Times, um, laughing at the New York Post. I don't buy it <laughs> um, ever. Um, uh, hiking, especially hiking. When I'm hiking and I do, you know, I do like maybe a five mile hike out there in those hills, and. I'm alone almost all the time, except for my dog. And, you know, sometimes it's just meditating. It's just like, I see green everywhere, but sometimes it's like, Oh, I have an idea. Um, and that's, that's where ideas come from, from relaxation um, and being in the zone. That's how I get my ideas. Like for a story or I started writing not that long ago, uh, a little bit. And a lot of it is, I'll talk to myself while I'm hiking. I'll, I'll actually say the words, say the dialogue or the story. Alone while I'm hiking, there's nobody up here. Ideas come from everything, from seeing movies, from reading books. So I can't just say one thing. Um, 
uh, hiking and nature is a big one though, right? It really gives your mind the space to kind of go where it needs to go to think creatively. Totally. hundred percent. I mean, in the city, it's a lot harder because you're bombarded with, Oh, there's a rat, there's garbage. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a homeless person, you know, and it's not a pretty thing and your mind is just bombarded out here. I have time to think and I really like it. Is there another book coming from you talking about writing or is this just for fun? Oh yeah. I mean, I think so. Um, definitely. Um, it's not easy for me to do, believe me. The first book that we did, you know, I had someone write it with me this time around. It's mostly just me. And so who knows if it will ever come to fruition, but there's definitely one there Love that, that we're kicking on. Okay. What is on your list of favorite things these days? What are you into? Um, so um, let's start with my, my favorite new reads. And I actually have it here. One is, this is my favorite new author, um, Carlo Rovelli. Carlo Rovelli in the order of time. Okay. The of time and this one he has four bestsellers on the new york times list this is a really good one to start with there are places in the world where 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 rules are less important than kindness yeah so he's a physicist from italy but he um he just brings science to the layperson and some of it's a little bit heavy um but he is amazing and Anybody can read this, the second book and really enjoy it because it's, it's stuff about, you know, movers and shakers in the world of science that you would never have guessed that they did or tried to do. And it's, you know, it, it makes you laugh or it makes you surprised um, about great people like Newton and Aristotle and uh, Einstein, etc. Anything else on your list? That was two books. Uh, yeah. Well, Books, so that's books. Uh My new travel obsession is I was invited to this conference called 300 Brilliant Minds in Stockholm, and that was in June. And so now I'm being half Norwegian, I am. Um, and my grandmother from Norway, I am obsessed with um Scandinavia now, and I uh, everything Swedish or Norwegian, or I want to know about. Um, I think it's a really interesting society and I like the way they live, the way they embrace nature. Um, it's just beautiful. And so, and, and this, this, this conference, it's every year. I only went this one time and I'm invited back to, um, to uh, interview someone. Um, it's going to be really fun. It's, I, I met Deepak Chopra and a bunch of other interesting people who are speaking at this conference. So Three Your Brilliant Minds, it's my new obsession. And, okay. and here this the uh subject is future gazing. Ooh. And last year it was called change. So we're going to be looking into the future and, it, and everyone invited will talk about their field and somewhere in the future of it. So fantastic. And that's a travel obsession. Believe it or not, I do not have a TV. I watch everything on my iPad or my phone. I find it doesn't drive you crazy to watch something on a small screen. It drives me crazy to see a big, ugly screen in my apartment. I can't handle it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Maybe built into the wall. It's too. It's too aggressive. I like you know, just like looking Ah. at 
Ah. So I'm watching, um, I'm watching uh, what is it called? I had never seen Seinfeld ever, and it popped up. Oh, so you're digging into Seinfeld now. So I saw the first season, and I laughed out loud for like a full day. So that, <laughs> and then more recent, I'm watching uh, Last Tango in Halifax, a British one that stars Sarah Lancashire, who played Julia in the movie, in the Netflix series, Julia Child. Uh, She's that's great. what I'm watching now. Um, and there's so many other things I like watching too. But Okay. Anything else on your list? No, TV and books. I, I'm kind of one focused person. Um, another thing I'm into is, um, you know, trying to turn my cabin into like a retreat center. So, you know, so I've been obsessed with how do I do that, right? So I looked around and in Canada, I found that cedar hot tub over there. And so that's a great source of wellness is before and after you hike. And then um, I love the idea of a cedar hot tub. Fabulous. It's nice from Canada. And then I found a local guy to build a, a a one lane lap swimming pool. Um, And so there's that. And then uh, finished sauna that a local guy knows how to build. So I'm, I'm obsessed with that. And like, you know, being able to ski here in my yard because it's a mountain um, and cross-country ski. So that's my obsession is enjoying all the seasons in nature as much as I can. I love it. Thank you so much for this conversation. This was great. Thank you for being on the podcast. It's really fun. Those were great questions.